you may be seated and our children may be dismissed with our volunteers in the back to Children's Church. And for those who remain, whether here in person or on the live stream, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. We are on the verge of wrapping up our series here in this book. Uh, I've had some degree of difficulty writing this sermon this week because uh, the more I read this passage, the more I realize uh, uh, it is a reflection of my own sinful heart. So I've reordered all the things and all the points. So you children who grab the busy bags and have your little outlines printed out there, uh, they're in the wrong order. See if you can figure out the right order as we go. Um, I am going to read uh, verses 1 through 11, but our focus this morning is Titus 3, 9 through 11. This is God's word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, We ask that you would abound to us with your goodness and loving kindness. That we might behold Christ, our Savior. That we might be aware of the power of the Holy Spirit present with us. That we might be those who are devoted not to stirring up division, but to doing good works. That bring glory to our God who has saved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, is division a good idea or a bad idea? I mean, it, I'm in the middle of my little March Madness bracket and it's broken up into divisions. It sort of helps make it simple, breaks it up, lets you choose things, and it's a lot of fun. And if you're doing well, I guess, anyway, until your team gets knocked out. But the divisions seem to help the the process of 
playing this this game. You know, there are whole divisions in sports, and when you divide big tasks up into little little tasks, it makes them easier sometimes to to accomplish. Is division a good thing or a bad thing? You might think, well, it's not so bad. The thing about division is it's designed to separate. It's designed to pull apart. Even in March Madness, the whole point of having all the divisions is so that teams get cast aside, separated out, until there's only one left standing. And while it might have seemed like a good idea when you were filling out your bracket, if you chose Kansas, you're thinking to yourself, it's not such a good idea anymore, or Purdue, or Duke. All of the divisions have brought you grief and sorrow. How much more when those divisions, when that separation, when that tearing apart affects things that are far more important. Our families, our relationships, our church. See, what God is about in the church is something completely different. We've been asking this question over and over again. What is the church for? And what we see in this passage is that in the church... God is doing the opposite of bringing division. He is gathering together a people for his own possession. He is purifying them, forming them, shaping them in his likeness and image, making them more and more like Jesus. He is bringing peace. He is bringing grace. He is bringing salvation to bear. In a world full of ungodliness and worldly passions. And so if we are to be that church that he's called us to be, we ought to be about what he is doing. Bringing peace, bringing good news, gathering together, being formed and shaped in his likeness and image. But it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look out into the world at other churches or even at our own and see that it is all too easy for us to be about fostering division than peace. So what are we to do about that? This morning, I want us to look at this passage and consider four questions that we might understand how the church is supposed to live out God's purposes rather than sowing division. The first is this, how should we even view division in the church? Like, what does that even mean? What is the fruit of one who sows division? What is the, the source of unity in the church? Like, how are we supposed to work against that division? And what is the cure for a divisive spirit, if when we consider our own hearts, we find that there. How are, we viewed, how are we to view divisions? What is the fruit of one who sows division? What is the source of unity in the church? And what is the cure for a divisive spirit? Children with the busy bags, if you're paying attention, you should have figured out the, the old order. First question I want us to consider then is how should we view divisions in the church? 
I mean, when you think about the church, is it known in our country, in our world, throughout history? Is it known more for growing and establishing unity? Or is it known more for division and divisiveness? Sometimes it, it seems like the, the marching orders of the church are more akin to like fast food restaurants. You know, when you're on that long trip and you get off on the exit at the interstate and it's just a long line of every kind of fast food restaurant. There's a Bojangles next to a Kentucky Fried Chicken, a McDonald's next to a Burger King, next to a Cookout, next to a Five Guys, next to a Chipotle, next to a Taco Bell. They're all there and you can just choose the one that you want which is usually five guys for us, but you, you do what you want, right? That's how it is. And so when you look out, there's a church on every corner. There's this kind of church and that kind of church and tall steeples and no steeples and lots of windows and no windows and big, small, medium-sized, every, just find the one that you like and go with that. Is, is that what this is supposed to look like? Paul here says in verse 9, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Which is to say, there are legitimate distinctions. There are going to be legitimate differences and even disagreements, even among people of good faith. We read in the book of Galatians about how Paul and Peter had a little disagreement that they had to work through. We see in the book of Acts, the church having lots of questions. Well, what are we supposed to do with the Gentiles? How are we supposed to figure this out? And one group said this, and one group said this, and they got together and they worked through it. There are going to be disagreements and divisions, but Paul points to a a category of division that is foolish, that is destructive, that is at its core about tearing apart and tearing down and not building up. Why? What makes it that way? Some of these controversies involved ridiculous things. Paul doesn't go into great detail in this letter to Titus, but he he hints at it that there are these empty talkers and deceivers that are tearing families apart with, with just lies and untruths. There are some who are more concerned with their genealogy, like what, where have you descended from? Or, or they're more concerned about, do you, do you have my view of the law? Have you figured out this little esoteric question about philosophy and religion and if you haven't then you don't really know god right and and these these are ridiculous things because they have utterly and completely missed the point they are unprofitable and worthless what is profitable and worthwhile well he's just told us God is doing something in the world through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring people to himself, to know him and his kindness and his goodness and his mercy. And we are to be a people so consumed with that that we are willing to devote our whole lives to doing works that magnify God's goodness. But what these people who are worried about these controversies and genealogies and divisions and quarrels about the law are doing is they have utterly and completely reversed all of the priorities. 
And they're saying, whatever it is that God is doing in this world, whatever it is that's important to him, is less important than the things that are important to me. We've really got to figure out exactly how this particular Old Testament law works. Can you wear a cotton polyester blend or not? We cannot be about serving the poor until we answer that question. It sounds foolish on the face of it, doesn't it? And yet, we found the Pharisees arguing about how many steps you can take on the Sabbath. We found the Judaizers worried about whether or not you could eat certain foods. And in our own day, we find all sorts of ways to make minor and secondary things more important than what God himself has devoted his energies to do in this world. to make, though, of divisions? How do we distinguish when they are legitimate or foolish? How do we know if it's worth really leaning into? Well, every situation is different. This passage gives us some principles. What's the fruit that it bears out in your life? Right? As the more you pursue these things, what, what does it look like? What is the outflow of your heart in the midst of disagreement? Right? Paul in Philippians hears about teachers and preachers who are preaching Christ through selfish ambition, which would really, really aggravate me. And Paul is like, I'm just glad people are hearing about Jesus. So when we talk about church membership, if you have come to the pastor's class, whenever we have it, you'll, you'll hear about the distinctives of our church. And we have distinctives. We're not like every other church, and every other church isn't like us. And it's okay to acknowledge those things. But when we start making those things the key to entrance into glory, we are the only true church. Membership in our body is the only way that you will find eternal life, we've started making division and not distinction. You can do this on a church scale. You do this on a denomination scale. It's good that there are denominations. We, we pray for churches that aren't in our denomination. We partner with churches. We have a, a kingdom mindset to, to be working with other Christians, to to further what God is doing in this world. And they don't have to be card-carrying Reformed Presbyterians, even if it's on our sign. It's good that we're different. They make us better. They make us sharper. They ask us questions that we have to consider and to listen to and wrestle with and, and wonder, do we have it right? Have we understood well? But when we fall into this sectarianism, this denominationalism, when we start just casting stones and acting like we are the only ones who have unlocked the key to all the truth, We have set all the priorities wrong because we have put ourselves in the place of God. And we have communicated that the things that are important to us are the things that are important. And we have not humbled ourselves before our God who has saved us, not by our righteousness, 
but by his mercy. And so when there is disagreement, one way you can tell if it is divisive is if your heart is bearing the fruit of malice and anger and hatred, where more and more we are hating and hating one another. Or does it bear the fruit of gentleness, of kindness, of mercy, of courtesy? Not to lie. Oh, everything's fine. You can be courteous and say, the light's red. Please don't step out into the street and get hit by the bus. What is the fruit that it bears in your life? There are real differences, but God is not about sowing division. He is about gathering a people and uniting them in Christ. And so let's talk about this a little bit more about this fruit of sowing division. What is, what does it look like? When our hearts start getting consumed more and more by that divisive spirit. You know, there's a, you may or may not be aware that there is a, a long standing debate in the world out there about which Star Wars movie is the best. And honestly, if you say anything other than Empire Strikes Back, I'm looking at you side eye. Return of the Jedi, Star Wars, those are legitimate answers, but everything else is wrong. And, and you should be ashamed of yourself. Right? Well, who, who am I to say? How is it that I know? Who appointed me Pope and, and, and master of what is good Star Wars and what isn't? Like, there comes a point where she's like, well, that's your opinion. And we go, to, we go on. It doesn't matter. Who cares? But if you go on the internet to certain places, you will find out that this is the most important question to some people, and it's ridiculous. But this is the spirit of divisiveness that can infect even the church. Look at this. As for a person who stirs up division, he is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. What a scary judgment. This is a person that delights in going and, and causing problems. This is a person who doesn't know the mercy and grace and loving kindness of Christ because he doesn't manifest it in any of his interactions with those with whom he disagrees. This is a person who has gotten his priorities so out of whack that he is warped. It's not just that he is sinful. It's not just that he is wicked. It's not just that he is rebellious. It's that he has been warped in the core of his being because he has followed an idol of his own construction. And it's not that God has to condemn him. He condemns himself because he has put in God's place some other thing, some other Issue, some other doctrine that is more important. He has forgotten that when we were God's enemies, when we were hostile to him, when we hated God and hated one another, he came to seek and save us. 
He poured his mercy and a grace out upon us. He saved us when we didn't have any righteous works in us sufficient to the task. There was real division. And God worked not to make it worse, but to heal it. One who finds joy in dividing has forgotten this. And whatever it is that they've put in the place of what God is about in this world, whatever doctrine, whatever idol, whatever genealogy, whatever practice, whatever political platform, whatever religious doctrine, whatever it is, no matter how good it might be that they have put in God's place, they are being shaped and molded and formed by that until they're warped by it. How are we tempted to make a law unto ourselves? Not to point people to Christ, not to invite people to his mercy, not to invite people to know him, to study him, to grapple and wrestle with him, but to conform to our standard. We do this when we fall into tribalism. When we, when we do not want to listen to any critique of where, who we are or what we believe in any way, shape, or form. We do this when we confuse primary and secondary and tertiary issues. We do this when we, when we grow impatient with people to change. Paul elsewhere says, and if you don't agree with that, God will make that clear to you also. He can be patient with people because God's the one who's at work. We give into this when we lack charity towards others. We disagree with us. And we begin to label them as evil or rebellious or wicked. And we forget who we were. And maybe even who we are. How do we do battle with this? What, how do we be about the work of unity and peace and not the work of division? And would we know true unity if we ever actually encountered it? Like, would we actually know? Our culture has grown so individualistic and atomized. Would we even know true unity if we found it? I used to, whenever we buy a house, move into a neighborhood, I used to make a point to join the the neighborhood association, thinking to myself, I'll get to know people in the neighborhood. We'll build community and relationships, and it'll be wonderful. And if you've ever been on a homeowners association, you know that is the opposite of what happens. It's just a bunch of people that get together once or twice a year to fight. The mailboxes should look like this. No, they should look like that. We should feed the deer. No, we should shoot the deer. No, we should. And I've just, uh, third time's the charm. I realize I, I, can't, I can't do that anymore. I don't, that's not the relationship I want to have with my neighbors. And yet you go on a playground, and more often than not, you see all these kids, they don't even know their names. All these different backgrounds. They might not even know where the other lives. And they find a 
way to play games together. What is it we've lost? It's interesting that Paul says that this division is not just unprofitable, but it's worthless. It's not just that it's not the best you can get, it's, it's in the negative. So what is worthy? What is the idea or the doctrine or the thing that is worthy enough that it can breed unity and peace? We've tried to find that, that the church throughout its history. We've put together many, many creeds and confessions. And there is a degree of unity that you can gather around creeds and confessions. And creeds and confessions are good. Don't leave here thinking the pastor said that they were bad. Well, good creeds and confessions are good. And bad creeds and confessions are bad. But you see what I did there. Um, but they don't bring unity, right? They bring a unity of a sort. But then you write this one and you're like, no, that's a bad one. I'm going to write my own. We've tried this with, uh, like, maybe we could just have the same style of worship or dress. And that'll, that'll unite people. People who are like us will all gather together and they'll be in the same place. And it'll be great until we find something else to divide about. Like, what, what, is, what is the idea or the doctrine or the thing that's worthy enough? There isn't one. It's not what can bring unity. It's who. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King and Head of the Church, He has revealed His mercy, His loving kindness, His grace, His salvation. He is gathering people to be His possession. He has united them to Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. He is building them together in Himself to be a holy temple called by His name. He is molding and shaping them more and more in His likeness and His image. And if we want to be United, we cannot truly be united apart from Jesus. And he is the one who is working even now to bring it about. It's what he prayed in the high priestly prayer of John 17. Lord, you and I are one. Make them one. That's exactly what he's doing. He is in the process of tearing down every dividing wall of hostility. That they aren't all gone yet ought to show us the depth of our divisiveness. It ought not to discourage us that the Lord is patient and kind and slow. So how is it then that Jesus becomes that unity for us? You can think about it a couple of ways. One, he's bringing people to himself. That's the the beginning. That that we could call ourselves brothers and sisters with people in this room who don't look like us, who don't dress like us, who don't talk like us, who don't have our story, who don't have our background, who aren't in the same class or aren't the same gender, aren't the same age. Is an amazing thing, if you think about it. We divide up everything. Our whole culture is trying to, like, we can't divide it up enough. And then we want to make everything go back together again, and it doesn't work. But God is drawing people from every tribe, language, people, and nation together to make them his own. We can call people brothers and sisters 
throughout the world. It's, it's a remarkable thing to go on a trip to some foreign nation like Canada and to go on a, to, into church one Sunday morning and look around and know like, these are my people. Or to go where you don't even know the language and be able to say, these yet are my people because of Christ. It's an amazing thing. But it also lets us invite the world into something different. The world operates under this divisive category of everyone needs to adopt my framework, affirm it, and agree to it. And what we're experiencing now in our culture is that is self-condemning. It tears apart. It destroys. And what Christians can do is, is, is step into those spaces and say, no, we are called to Christ. And so we can speak truth. He's calling us to walk after him in love and good deeds. He's calling us to repent of our sins, whatever they may be. Sexual sins, financial sins, moral and ethical sins, private sins, public sins. Repent of those, turn from those, and come back to Christ. But we can speak that truth in love with a genuine heart that people would hear and come. Sometimes I think Christians are so afraid that a real sinner might hear that gospel call and respond to it. And what are we going to do with them? They have no idea. Is that their problem or ours? Are our hearts divisive? Are our hearts so misaligned with God's plans and purposes that we can't imagine a world where he would call someone a murderer? Your boss. Homosexuals. Divorced people. Traumatized people. Traumatizers. That he would call all those kinds of people to himself. Not to stay the same. Because he hasn't called any of us to stay the same. To call us to himself, to save us, to cover us with his righteousness, to mold and shape us in his likeness and image, that we might be a people that are truly God's own. So, what is the cure for divisive spirits? If we Read this. If you're looking at this and if you're like me, you're starting to see a little bit too much of yourself in this warped and sinful person. What's the cure? All too often when we see something bad happening, when we see things tearing apart, we see division. We're, we're like the culture when there's a fight. Everybody's like, oh, it's a fight. And what's the first thing they do? They, they, they get out their phones and they start to film it. Like It's like... The fight goes on for 20 minutes before you see somebody try to step in there and maybe stop it or bring peace. Or what it look like for us when we see division, not to just stand on the sidelines eating popcorn and watching it happen, but to step into it 
and to be about what God is doing to bring peace. This is what it means when it says, warn such a person once and then twice. Have nothing more to do with him after that. Three strikes and you're out sort of thinking. But understand this warning, it's not a harsh or a bitter warning. It's a warning that flows out of a heart that has been touched by God, that has been brought out of darkness into light, that once was enslaved to various passions and worldly desires, that has been brought into the very household of God and faith. This warning is, brother, sister, beware. Are you leaving Christ behind in favor of an idol that you have lifted up instead? It is a warning that desires reconciliation, that longs for reconciliation. And the reason you're warning once and warning twice and then after that have nothing to do with them is because we, in our own strength, cannot coerce someone into repentance. There does come a point in time where we have to turn them over to the Lord and let him work. where it's not a good use of our time or energy, where it even begins to sow division, to even call to repentance and faith. It is, as the Lord said, casting for pearls before swine. But when we remember that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we are not the Holy Spirit himself. Even in our sadness and disappointment when people don't listen, We can still lift them up in prayer and turn them over to our God. Sometimes our pride can keep us from doing that. And so we just go, we we set aside prayer, we set aside the Lord, and we go in guns blazing. No, you need to, you really need to listen to me and conform to my standard. And we wind up being the very divisive person that we've sought to warn. What does it look like for us to be a people after God's own heart? It looks like a lot of things. But if it looks like anything, it looks like this. It looks like us being a people who are dumbfounded by how hard it is to call people to Christ. It's so hard, in fact... You can't, you can't make it happen. Only God himself can do it. And that he chooses to invite us to participate with him in that work is an amazing thing. It's a gracious thing. It's an, an opportunity for us to be apprenticed to Jesus, to learn more and more about who he is and what he's about. And if it teaches us anything, it teaches us we need more grace. Because our hearts are full of division. We need his grace to bring us his peace. Because our hearts are so easily warped, we need his grace to bring us his gentleness and his courtesy and his righteousness and his glory. We need his grace to unite us to himself and to one another that God might bring peace and unity and healing.
that his people might be his people for his glory. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, forgive us for all of the times that we have lifted up our preferences and priorities ahead of your own. Lord, it is so subtle sometimes. We can even cling to really wondrous things and still lose sight of you. Exalt Jesus before us, we pray. Give us that childlike faith that we might look to him and with joy seek more and more connection with those around us, that we might know them and be known by them, that that we together might be a people who know God and are known by him, that we might not settle for division, but might be a people devoted to doing the good work that you've called us to do, that we might be a people who are about that ministry of reconciliation and peace. Do this for the glory of Christ, for we ask it in his name. Amen.